0: Our study here through the book of Genesis, if you remember correctly, last week we were introduced to Jacob and Esau, and we talked about how Jacob and Esau were going to start taking center stage, but we have this one little chapter here, Genesis 26, where Isaac. Isaac gets to take center stage. I don't think Isaac gets enough attention in the Bible. Isaac seems like he was a pretty good guy. Now, he sometimes didn't make the best choices with his children, but you know what? Of all these guys, of Abraham, of Jacob, of Esau, etc., One thing I've always liked about Isaac, he's the only one that had one wife. And I I don't even mean that as a joke. He's the only one that had one wife. And him and Rebekah, they seem to have that that blessed marriage together. There's a neat little verse about that here tonight. I've always kind of liked Isaac. We don't get a lot of information about him, but he takes center stage here in Genesis 26. There's some good, there's some bad, there's some ugly in Genesis 26. Starting in Genesis 27, Jacob and Esau take center stage. And that's kind of where the direction goes. Really starting to focus on Jacob, who has the 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. And we're really getting close here to the this understanding of Israel now as a nation, as a group of people. So with that being said, let's talk about Isaac tonight. There's a lot of verses. This is actually a long chapter here, verse 34, a lot of information. So let's kind of start breaking this down. Verse 1, it says, There was a famine in the land, besides the first famine, that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father, and I will make your descendants multiply. As the stars of heaven, I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. Now this is a good start. Abraham had this great promise given to him by God, Isaac has inherited that promise. And this is where the Messiah is eventually going to come through, is this lineage. So Abraham was given this wonderful calling and blessing of God that in you, the world shall be blessed. And you're going to have this chosen child at 100 years old, which Isaac was. And now God is telling Isaac, you get that same blessing. You get that same thing. And that's pretty neat to see. So it starts out really good. You see the passing of the mantle, if you will, from Abraham to Isaac. And you see verse five, "Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws." That's actually encouraging to read, to see this blessing that comes out of obedience. So Isaac stayed, verse six. Now let's read verse seven, and the men of the place asked about his wife, and he said, "She's my sister." So he was afraid to say, "She is my wife." Because he thought, lest the men of the palace kill me for Rebekah, because she is beautiful to behold. Now it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through his window and saw, and there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Quite obviously she is your wife. So how could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I said, Lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, Well, what is this thing you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now this is where we got to start talking about this. Now, there's a famine. Famine in the land, different than the time that happened with Abraham, if you look back in verse 1. Why are we talking about this? Because we've been here before. And Genesis 12, Abraham left because there was a famine, and he went down to Egypt. Didn't go good. Genesis 20, there was a famine, and he went to the same area of Abimelech. Now, you've got to remember, most people think Abimelech is not a man's name, it's more of a title, So Abimelech is probably more king of the Philistines area because at the time that Abraham went down to Abimelech the first time, that would have been decades ago. So it's probably not the same guy. But we've been here before. Dad has set the scene. Famine, go to Egypt, didn't go good. That's where they got Hagar, if you remember correctly. And Hagar wasn't a great addition to the family. They also went in Genesis 20, and Abraham lied both times. Abraham had this tendency to lie... That my wife is really not my wife, she's my sister. Guess what Isaac does? Isaac does the same thing. He has a tendency to lie. She's not my wife, she's my sister. Now why is that? That is because we have a tendency as kids to look at our parents, and not do we only pick up the good traits, we also pick up the bad traits. And I think this is one of those things that as a parent, it's encouraging to hear that your, parents, your kids can learn from you the good, but they also do learn the bad and the ugly. Now, I'm not saying Abraham said to Isaac specifically, hey, if you ever ever in a tough shot, just tell everybody it's the sister thing. That worked for me. Lying doesn't work. I mean, seriously, this almost feels like a kindergarten lesson. Kids, lying will not work. Why is it still as adults that we still think we can get away with stuff? We had a situation recently with our third son, Kenan, where we were pretty sure something was going on. So we pulled him aside. I actually, I pulled him into the laundry room, and and when I really want to talk to him, he's six years old. I get down on my knee and I I hold his hands, and I say, "Ken, I said, I said, look at me, buddy here. I said, don't lie to me. I said, just tell me the truth. I said, you're not going to get in trouble. I just need to know the truth. Is this happening?" No, it's not happening. We have a little phrase that we like to use in the urban house. It's called, I promise. And we use this that we, we can't ever lie with the word I promise. We, we can say silly, goofy things, but if somebody comes and says, now do you promise, it's kind of like you got to tell the truth type of thing. So, do you, he goes, I promise I'm not. Okay, it still seemed awkward. The boys are coming and saying, Dad, this is happening. And saying it's not. My big rule at the house is, listen, Kenan wouldn't lie to me. He's not going to lie to me. So dawn sits down, talks to him. He does the exact same thing. I promise it's not happening. So we found irrefutable evidence that was happening. He stowed something away behind something. He's not a good hider, and he's not a good liar. He needs to work on both those traits. So we found out, and I said, buddy, you lied to me. And when we sat down. And, and you know, and honest, I'm going to be honest, he got in trouble for lying. But at the same time, we said, Did, didn't you feel... You know, I'm talking to a six-year-old here. I said, didn't you feel yucky? Yeah. He felt awful. I said, didn't you just feel that awful thing in your stomach that you're looking right at me and telling me and you're lying to me? He goes, I felt awful about it. It's not worth it. I'm trying to think of an example in the Bible where lying is actually a good thing. Some of you may say, well, there's the whole story of Rahab, etc., and all that other type of stuff. Talking about right here at Genesis. Abraham lying in Genesis 12 didn't work out good. Abraham lying in Genesis 20 didn't work out real good. Abraham and Isaac lying in Genesis 26 doesn't work out real good. Paul wrote to us in Corinthians saying that these Old Testament men were given to us as examples of not only of what to do, of what not to do. So how many times do we need to learn lying doesn't work? And it really doesn't work, verse 7, if you say that she is your sister, and then in verse 8, you're showing endearment to her. You know, I think King James, you guys say something really cool in verse 8. Doesn't it say sporting with her? I looked up that word sporting, and it's playful, it's fun. I think we would probably say flirting. And here's just a little side note here. You want a happy, healthy marriage? Have that fun, that flirting. But Isaac is really not acting like brother and sister here. They see it, they notice, and he is rebuked by the world. you ever think about that? As Christians, we are not better than the world. And this comes across the wrong way so often that we believe we're better, holier, and mightier than the world. My goodness, we're all a bunch of failures and sinners saved by the grace of Jesus. But when the world has to step in and say, hey, Christian, that you're supposed to be living to a better standard than me, when a world person has to step in and correct us and rebuke us, there's a major breakdown in the system. So when Abimelech, who there is no hint of being being a godly man, has to pull aside Isaac, who the Messiah comes through and say, hey, by the way, you're lying to us, that's not a good thing. Lying doesn't work. It doesn't work. And we're going to get to more of this in a little bit. Let's stop here real quick. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments about the first couple points here we made before we move on? Okay. Now, let's build on this. A couple things that we see here. Now, if you look at your sheets, and I apologize, the sheets are a little bit out of order because this is such a unique chapter. So just bear with me. Because the first point I want to make here is actually on the second half of your sheet on the back. Why did Isaac lie? He's walking in fear. Look what he says in verse 7. She's my sister, for he was afraid to say she is my wife. And what also happens, look at the second half of verse 7. Because he thought, lest the men of this place kill me for Rebecca. The two most dangerous things you can do, walk in fear and think. Those two things are not a good combination. When you're walking in fear, you're not walking in faith. And, And I don't know what brings you into fear. There's so many different things in this world that can cause fear. The things that cause me fear may not cause you fear. And if I would be open with you and say, hey, these are the things that completely, utterly freak me out, you'd maybe you'd laugh and say, I can't believe that. We have Fear's not rational. It doesn't make sense. So when we choose to walk in fear, look at our verse that we put down there, uh, 2 Timothy 1.7. God's not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and a sound mind. So when you're walking in fear... You're not walking where the Lord wants you to be. You, you can't say, I'm in God's will, walking mightily in the Spirit, and I'm completely, utterly fearful on this issue. Those things do not work. So when you walk in fear and you make a decision in fear, you're not making a decision in God's will. Number two, Isaac made this decision in his own mind. There's a great passage, and I believe it's the King Rehoboam, where it says that he thought to himself, the most dangerous person I can have a conversation with is me. Because when I talk to myself, I think I have the most amazing points in the world. And I always agree with myself. I don't know if I've ever disagreed with myself. So when Isaac in his own mind created up this scenario, no one disagreed with him. I mean, do you think if Isaac would have sat down with some other godly men and said, Hey guys, i got an idea, I want to run by you. I'm going to lie and tell everybody that Rebecca's my sister... Because I'm walking in fear and I'm afraid of what they're going to do to me. I don't think there would have been a godly man that says, hey, great idea. I mean, I can't imagine you coming up to me and saying, hey, great idea. Walk in fear and lie. That's a wonderful combination. No. But when you have this conversation with yourself, it's kind of dangerous. Have you ever convinced yourself of something in your own mind? Listen to these passages. We don't have time to turn there, but it's Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. We always talk about verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Great verse. What I want to focus on, lean not on your own understanding. We make too many decisions in this life based on what we feel, what we think, and what we think is a good solution. Verse 7 adds this. Do not be wise in your own eyes. I've shared this example with you many times before. If somebody comes up to me and they want to do something that does not seem to line up with Scripture. The two questions I ask them is, have you prayed and fasted over this? And do you feel that this lines up with God's Word? Because those two things start weeding out a lot of dumb ideas. Too often we make decisions being wise in our own eyes based on what we think. And if that happens, you get an Isaac situation, which is walking in fear... And basing things on your own thoughts and lying. It's never good. What else do we see? What put them in this situation? There's a famine. If you look at the front of your sheets now, we talk about this idea of famine, wilderness time. What is the purpose of a wilderness time? First off, let's describe what a wilderness time is. A wilderness time is when you are just spiritually dry. Let's just be honest work's rough, home's rough, you're not feeling good physically. Spiritually, you're praying and you don't hear any answers. Emotionally, you're dry. It is a wilderness. You you feel like you're spiritually in this dry, barren land. The purpose of a wilderness time, if you look at your sheets, the purpose is to strip you of everything but Jesus to show you that all you need is Jesus. I mean, I don't know how how many times people have come up to me and said they're going through a really difficult time and they've talked to their spouse and they can't help. They've talked to their kids and they can't help. They've talked to their best friend. They've talked to this. They've talked to the pastor and it doesn't help. Sounds like a wilderness time. The only thing you need is Jesus. That's not me passing the buck. That's me trying to teach you, or I should say the Lord trying to teach you. The only thing you need is Jesus. Do you realize that God uses wilderness times all the time? Think of all the great people who have gone through wilderness times. Moses spent 40 years in his wilderness time. David went in the wilderness time. Paul spent three and a half years in a wilderness time. Jesus himself spent 40 days in the wilderness. This idea of stripping you of everything... To show you that all you need is Jesus. So did this work for Isaac? I think it did. This is where the lesson's a little out of order, but we have to follow it. Jump ahead to verse 25. Actually, look at verse 24. Genesis 26, verse 24. The Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant's name, servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. And he pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. The wilderness time got Isaac to where it was supposed to be. The first half of this chapter, Isaac's making some decisions that really aren't all that great. When you get to verse 25 and you see Isaac building this altar and realizing it's the Lord, things turn a little bit here. If you're going through a wilderness time right now and it's a tough time, this is God's time to tell you to re focus. It's God's way of trying to tell you this is a time to grow and to refocus to me. Too often when we are in a wilderness, our response is I want to get out of it as quickly as I possibly can. God says I want to use this to grow you. You don't need to turn there, but that 1 Peter 1 verse says this, in this you greatly rejoice that now for a little while if need be you have been grieved by various trials. Grieved! It hurts, it's painful, it's not fun. Why, Lord, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you want to know what type of believer you are? Go through a tough time. Because when you go through a tough time, that reveals what type of believer you are. During the good times of life, we can all raise our hands, praise and worship, and say, praise Jesus. It's when life gets difficult that it's revealed... What type of believer we are. Romans 5 says this. It says, not only that, but we also glory in tribulation. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. Now hope is not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out to our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. Difficult times reveal who we are and grow us as a believer. And it gets rid of all that junk. Isaac went through some tough times. He made some stupid choices. Walked in fear, lied. But you also see him then getting the point across later, building the altar, and using this as a time to refocus and get to be where the Lord called him to be. Now, we'll take a quick break here before we move on to the second half of this. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments on anything here we went over thus far? Sorry, Sammy, go ahead. And that's a very valid point. You, you, you want it to be a wilderness time of an hour, but like I said, Moses had a forty-year wilderness time, and you know some of you have been through some very, very difficult spots in life, and you may say, "Okay, Lord, when are you going to pull me out of this?" There's no set time given. That's the hard part about this. And I know one of the most difficult things I do as a pastor is when you go up to someone going through a difficult time, they usually ask why. And I usually say, I can't answer a why question. I can't. But I can tell you this the Lord is good and does good. And the Bible says He has a wonderful plan for your life, and He will get you through this difficult time. And to be perfectly honest, and I know this isn't the best teaching point, but sometimes the wilderness time doesn't end until we're taken home to heaven. And we got to remember that, that sometimes that's the ultimate form of God saying, Your trial is done, come home to eternity. But you're right. Sandy's right. We don't know how long they last, and it can be a while. And we don't know how long they were here, because if you look at um, where is it? There's a verse here, and we haven't read it yet, and I can't find it off the top of my head. It says that they were there a long time. I don't know how long of a time they were there, but they were there. Like I said, Moses himself had a 40 year wilderness time. Good point. Anybody else have anything here before we move on? All righty. So, the big secret's been found out. Abimelech says, no one touch him. No one touch her. So now that the secret's out, verse 12, Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. For he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. Now stop right there. Two points. First off, verse 13. I think there's a real reason they're repeating this word. This man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. I think the Lord is trying to get a point across there. Do you realize why this man was so prosperous? Verse 12, he planted. And think about this, farmers. You plant in the field and you get a hundredfold. That's pretty impressive. You know what's even more impressive? There's a famine going on. As best as we could tell, he's planting in an area where... It's a tough time, agriculturally speaking. If there wasn't a famine going on, he wouldn't have moved. This is a tough thing. This is God's hand being on it. You know what that shows me? It shows me no matter how difficult my situation is that I'm facing, the Lord still wants to bless me. Now be careful with this word bless. Because if you go to the wrong crowd and you start saying the Lord wants to bless you, you know what they start thinking? They start thinking money signs. Isn't that fascinating? We have become a group of people that anytime we talk about the Lord blessing, and sometimes I'm leery of even saying that, because I don't want anybody on a Sunday or a Wednesday to walk away saying, well, God wants to bless me, let's just go home and see how much money's sitting at my door. The Lord can bless you financially if that's what He wants to do. Sometimes the Lord blesses you with just peace in the house. Sometimes the Lord blesses you with that car that should have been dead at 150,000 miles, now at 180,000 miles. The Lord blesses us in many different ways. Sometimes the Lord blesses you with friends and fellowship. Sometimes the Lord blesses you in all these different ways. And I think we got to be careful, because when we see verses like this in verse 12, the Lord blessed them, etc., it's not always material possessions. And for some reason, that's what the church has started to preach. In Isaac's situation, it was material possessions. Verse 14, possessions of flocks, possessions of herds, great number of servants. But it doesn't have to be that way. How do we get blessed today? Look at your sheets, Joshua 1 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that's written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous. There's our word. You'll have good success. I tell you, that's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. You want to have a prosperous, successful life? Get your nose in the Bible meditate on it. Remember, meditate means to chew. It doesn't mean just read it. If you've been going through with us on the um, Facebook page or the church website, the Psalm 119 study, this word meditate is used all the time. Meditate does not just mean read it. It means to contemplate it, look into it, chew on it, pray over it. Too often Christians just, well, here's my verse, I read it. Did you meditate on it? Did you pray it? did you chew on it? And the result of that is you will be prosperous and have good success. Once again, why is it when we read prosperous and good success, we automatically start thinking business, financial. Maybe prosperous, once again, there's peace in the home and successes. Maybe in my sake, maybe it's going to be five boys that love the Lord and go out there and make a witness for Him. You know, what's God's definition of success? Does it, God's not impressed with money. He's impressed with Spiritual. So, prosperous and successful? Yeah, it could be physical. Maybe it's spiritual. point is, is being in the Word. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is my favorite psalms in the Bible. It basically explains everything we need to know. It's so short, so simple. Only six verses, but it's got so much in there. Psalm 1. You're going to see these words that we're talking about. Blessed and prosperous, etc. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed. There it is. Blessed literally means, oh, happy. Oh, how happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, here's our word again, meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. How simple are those first three verses? You are blessed, verse 1, when you're not walking in the counsel of the ungodly, standing in the path of sinners, or sitting in the seat of scornful. You are blessed when you delight in the Lord, you're meditating in His word. And verse 3, you're planted in Him, rooted in the Lord. And that's when you prosper. Spiritually grow and prosper. I tell you, you want your family to grow and spiritually prosper? Get in the Word together. Grow together. Pray together. You want your personal life to prosper in the Lord? Do what verse 2 says. Delight in the law of the Lord and meditate it on it day and night. Like I said, that's those phrases that keep coming back up again in our Psalm 119 study. Delighting and studying in it. So Isaac is blessed. Back to Genesis 26 here. He's blessed. And what a wonderful blessing that is. But you know what happens with blessing verse 14? The Philistines envied him. You ever realize people just can't be happy for you? I think one of the toughest verses in the Bible is rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So if I'm having a great day, I'm having a wonderful day, best day I've ever had, I run into you and you're having the worst day you've ever had. I'm called to let go of my good day and weep with you. You're called to let go of your awful day and rejoice with me. Which one's harder to do? I don't know. I think they're both difficult to do. Because when we're having a great day, what do we say mentally? I don't want anybody to bring me down. I don't want to talk to... Every time I talk to that person, they're just negative. So I saw them in the bread aisle at Walmart and I'm going right to frozen foods. You know, we just (laughs) dodge them. And what happens when we're having a bad day? When we're having a bad day, misery loves company. Don't tell me how great your family is. Don't tell me how great your marriage is. Don't make me great your health is. I'm having a bad day. Everybody needs to suffer with me. Maturity is I can let go of my good day and focus on your bad day. And maturity is I can let go of my bad day and focus on your good day. What do we see here in Genesis 26? Isaac is blessed. Verse 14. <sighs> Philistines don't like it. So what do they do? Verse 15. This. Childish. Now the Philistine had stopped up all the wells which his father servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, and they had filled them with earth. I don't know why, but I looked this up today, and I knew this, but until you visualize it, you know, when we dug our well, when we built our house, I'm trying to remember how deep we had to go for our water. I think it was, I think it was about 80-some foot, I can't remember. So about 80-some foot, and I've heard people around here talk about having to go 120, 30, 40, 50 foot to get to good water. Okay, now now go dig that in a desert with very primitive tools. Do you realize how awfully difficult that would be to do? So you dig a well, you get good water, verse 15, and some schmuck comes behind after you and fills it in? That's, that's fighting words right there. Verse 16, Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, you are much mightier than me. So Abimelech's great response is, you've gotten too powerful, leave. Verse 17, then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines have stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. And Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, This water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, which means quarrel, because they quarreled with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one. So they called its name Sitna, which means enmity, fighting. Verse 22, then he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel with it. So he called his name Rehoboth, which means spaciousness. Because he said, for now the Lord has made room for us, and we should be fruitful in the land. And then he went up from there to Beersheba. Now, I want to say a couple points here. Don't take this teaching point and apply it to all situations. And don't take the opposite of this teaching point and apply it to all situations. At this time, Isaac is called to not fight over this. He's called to not quarrel. Now there's other times in the Bible where you're called to fight. And this is one of the tough things and this is what happens. I see Christians take the extremes both sides. You run into the Christians that say it's not worth fighting over anything. Well, I disagree. I think there's great biblical examples of sometimes you got to argue. You got to fight over things. But then I also see Christians fighting over everything. There's sometimes you just got to shut up and let it go. Isaac right here, it sure seems like The best wisdom he had was just let it go. Do you realize how difficult that would be to let it go? This guy is so powerful. Verse 16, go away from us. You are much mightier than we. This guy had an army. If you remember correctly, his dad had his own personal militia. Isaac inherited all that. Isaac's servants are probably having servants. Isaac could have took these guys on. But he didn't. He just said, You want to fill up my well? Fine, I'll dig another well. Oh, you want to fill up that well? Fine, I'll dig another well. This goes back to the conversation that we had on Sunday, and I don't want to repeat the whole message, but this is sometimes where as Christians we're considered weak because we don't stand up for ourselves. I had somebody tell me one time they work in a factory, and they were talking, and we were talking about these verses and about how as believers, we need to speak differently in the world, act differently in the world. We can't do that type of stuff. And he said, Well, you don't know what type of environment I work in. That's the only way you can handle that environment. I don't know about that. I think Jesus is a little bit bigger than that. I don't think you could ever make a case to say, well, you know what? My neighbor, the only way I can handle my neighbor is I got to cuss like he cusses. I got to fight like he fights. Got to play hardball with these people. I don't think so. I don't see that. I see Isaac here saying, oh, you filled my well up, I'll just go dig another one. Oh, you filled that well up, I'll go dig another one. See, we see that, and we immediately say, weak man. Maybe that's a wise man. Remember our verses from Sunday. Look at the bottom of your sheet on the second part. Proverbs 15, 18. This is out of the New Living Translation. I love the way it reads. A hot-tempered person starts fights. A cool-tempered person stops them. I don't know how that translated exactly over from the Hebrew, but I like the way that words. Hot-tempered person starts fight, a cool-tempered person stops them. Look at Proverbs 17, 14. We talked about this on Sunday. The beginning of strife is like recently using water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. I told you the example on Sunday of my wife. When I go up to her and say, I don't want to argue, she interrupts me and says, well, then don't. That's how simple it is. Isaac could have fought this. He could have. And you know what? Maybe there's examples, and I shouldn't say maybe, I know there are. There's examples in the Bible where God says, nope. We're not letting this one go. My point is this. You can't take this and apply it to every situation of every single time you got to let it go. There are certain times where the Lord says, Nope, don't let this one go. But you can't go the other way either and say every single time I'm going to fight. Nope, sometimes the Lord says let it go. So you may be sitting there saying, Well, how am I supposed to know what to do? That's the point of prayer. That's the point of fasting. That's the point of wisdom. Look at Jesus. Jesus, when he was on trial... Obviously he felt called to speak to Pilate. So he did. Jesus went to Herod. And obviously he felt called to not speak to Herod. Now that's Jesus. He knew the wisdom. There's going to be times at work this week where God's going to say, don't say a thing. And the wisest thing you could do is keep your mouth shut. And then there's going to be a time the next day where the Lord says, say something. But Lord, you just told me yesterday not to. Each situation is unique. Each situation is different. For Isaac here... The situation was, let it go. Let it go. Let's finish this up real quick. Verses 24 we talked about. Verse 25 we talked about. Isaac spiritually gets it figured out. Verse 26, then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Azuth, one of his friends in Ficol, the commander of his army. Once again, Abimelech seems to be a title, so the king comes. Verse 27, Isaac says to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So he said, let us now there be an oath between us, between you and us, that make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, since we have not touched you, and since we have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace, you are now the blessed of the Lord. i got to give this guy, Abimelech credit. He sees the Lord in Isaac, he sees the blessing, and he says, I don't want to mess with this. Verse 30, so he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. Then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another. Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. It came to pass the same day. Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug, and said to him, We have found water. So they called it Sheba. Sheba there in verse 33 means oath. Therefore the name of the city is called Beersheba, which means well of the oath. When Isaac and called Beersheba to this day, now, when Esau was 40 years old, he took wives Judith, the daughter of Bera, the Hittite, and Basmoth, the daughter of Ellen, the Hittite, and they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. We're going to use that as a stepping stone to next week, so we're not going to get into verses 34 and 35. But what you see here with Isaac, wilderness times, purpose of that is to strip you of everything but the Lord, to remind you that all you need is Jesus. He made some bad choices at the beginning, lying about his wife, not good. He gets it figured out. The Lord blesses him. He seems to follow God's will here of not getting into an argument. You see verses 24 and 25. He recommits himself to the Lord with that altar, that focus. And you see the Lord's blessing being on him. We can learn a lot from this chapter. It kind of jumps all over the place. But there's a lot of good stuff in there about trusting the Lord in wilderness times. There's a lot of good stuff in there about realizing the focus needs to be on Him. And this idea of trust, trusting Him. Don't walk in fear. Walk in faith. Be careful of those conversations with yourself. Sometimes the best advice you give yourself is not good at all. So, anybody have any final questions, comments here before we close up and let you guys go with a word of prayer? Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to do that. Walk in faith, not fear. Help us during the wilderness times to realize you are all we need. And if there's somebody here tonight going through a wilderness time, uplift them, encourage them, strengthen them, Lord, in all ways and all things. Lord, we also just think of Isaac here, of just recommitting himself during this time. Help us to commit ourselves to you. And Lord, when you do bless us, help us to realize it's all you, it's not us. And just as your word says, we are blessed when we meditate in your word and we know that your time, excuse me, our time in your word Brings a blessing. Help us to remember that. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, we'll continue our study here next week. You guys have a good week and God bless.